We come now to a time of fellowship from 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 56 to 57. It said, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses his servant. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. I don't know if you caught that last verse, but it said it is the Lord who inclines our hearts to follow after his word, as it says elsewhere, that he is the one who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we're going to hear the word now preached, incline your heart to it, that the Lord may do his work in inclining your heart to his, his word as well. Brother? Turn me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. And this morning we are entering into on a, to a new uh, section, um, one of another exhortations that Malachi gave to the people of God. And it revolves around God's justice. Now, brothers and sisters, there are two, one, one or only two, it'll be one and actually both of them at probably at the same time, but two ways that we approach God. We either approach him on a performance basis, and, and we do that, all of us, to a degree. Um, or we approach him because of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. Okay, so either he is our father, he is our lover, he's our Lord, um, he's a person, so we relate to him as a person, as part of his family, as sons and daughters, or we will relate to him on the, on the performance basis. And uh, when you and I opt for the performance, um, that genuinely leads to um, mechanistic living before God, um, where Christianity is not a relationship with God. It's, it's just a, a list of things that you do, and after a while, they become mindless. And then after a while, we begin morphing them, and we have to change them so that they have significance for us. And pretty soon, we're doing things, and we've morphed, we've morphed things and perverted things that um, God gave us for a glorious purpose, and they're no longer for that purpose in our lives. And that was the people of God in Malachi's day that he's writing to in this text. Um, and typically, uh, a typical of performance-based uh, Christianity, mechanistic uh, Christianity, there are... Um, uh, um, what we'd call um, uh, pitfalls. And one is worship. The other is the pulpit. The other is our body life. What happens to our body life? If you're, a, if you're on a performance basis, our body life is destroyed. And now this morning, the fourth topic Malachi addresses, another area where uh, mechanistic uh, Christianity, performance-based Christianity, rears its ugly head, is on the character of God, specifically our notion and understanding of his justice. And quite frankly, if you're performance-based, you're going to have a problem with God's justice. And that's what Malachi is addressing this morning. So 2.17 through 3, really verse 5, but 6 is a transition verse. 6 will be the beginning of the next section we look at, but I'm going to look at verse 6 with you as, as well because it's a transition. So 2.17 through 3.6 and, uh, is the text before us this morning. Clearly the fourth area that we are being exhorted on. And as this is God's word, brothers and sisters, let me invite you to stand together with me and let's read God's word. 
Hear now the word of our God. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. The Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. As in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swore falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of your word the privilege that we have this very moment to fellowship with you at a time and place that you ordained for us corporately to fellowship. And Lord, today as we gather in fellowship in our meals, Lord, that we would fellowship around this glorious message. God, we pray you would would open our eyes, teach us, humble us, transform us, and make us into the people you've called us to be. Give me grace to preach your word with fidelity, O Lord, I pray. We pray you'd wet it with the need of your people. Lord, we entrust this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Matthew eleven six, you could, you could argue, is the ninth beatitude. And it says this, Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. It's easy to stumble over Christ. You'd think it wouldn't be, but it really is as Christians. One way we stumble over Christ is with the, the question, why do bad things happen to good people? That, has, that question has disturbed its thousands. Why do bad things happen to good people? I think biblically there's a really easy answer to that a question, and uh, most of you probably know it, so we don't struggle that much with that one. But there's another one that we stumble on. Um, I'm over. It, it causes to stumble and I walk with God. And it's, it's not why do, why do bad things happen to good people. It's the opposite. Why do good things happen to bad people? Family of God, if the first one has slain its thousands or disturbed its thousands, this one disturbs its ten thousands. Redemptive history is filled with godly men, godly brothers and sisters who have struggled with that very question. Jeremiah, that godly prophet, wrote, Righteous art thee, art thou, O Lord, that I would plead my case with thee. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with thee. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are you good to the wicked? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? That's Jeremiah, Habakkuk, 
Habakkuk 1.13, why dost thou look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why art thou silent when the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than thee? Lord, why are you so good to the wicked? Why don't you just damn them? Job, why do the wicked still live, continue on, and become very powerful? Why are you so good to them, God? Asaph, this godly Asaph, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They've increased in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my my heart pure. Wash my hands. And then he said, man, Lord, I I look what you're doing with the wicked. And I say, why am I caring about sin? Why do I care? God blesses the wicked. I've been in vain that I've been focusing on being godly. Solomon. And all his wisdom couldn't get beyond the questions. Ecclesiastes, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. What gives God? You, you, you feel like that? I know that you do. You ever feel like God? Now, you may not put it in a way like, you know, why is God good to the wicked? But that's what you're struggling with. And ultimately, behind that question is the justice of God. God, why are you not just? Justice would demand that you not bless these people. But it seems as though, Psalm 73, that's all you ever do is bless the wicked. And your people, you, you sell cheaply. You treat us horribly. And yet, brothers and sisters, of those five men that I referenced, every one of these men asked this question and struggled with this issue in faith. And when you and I ask this question, it's a good question. And we struggle with this question in faith. Do you know where it leads you? It leads you to a deeper walk with Christ. Asaph asked his question in faith. And it ends with, Then I came into the sanctuary of God. Notice his faith. Then I perceived their end. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. When you deal with this question in faith, it leads you to a deeper, more devout love and passion for God, ultimately. But that's not how the people of God in Malachi's day dealt with it. They didn't deal with it in faith because they're performance-based. They presumed that God helps those who help themselves. My walk with God is based on my performance. And because I do great things, God owes me. And because they do bad things, justice means God owes them bad things. And yet, brothers and sisters, God didn't give bad things to the wicked in Malachi's day, as he does not in our own. And so these performance-based, mechanistic Christians wrote a Christians, bored with God Christians... Woke up one day, began uh, contemplating, and began uh, concluding, you know what, quite frankly, God, I don't like the way you're ruling this universe. If you're a just God, you wouldn't do this. Therefore, hence, you must not be just. You must be one who delights in ill. And so God sent Malachi to address yet another area, another victim of mechanistic Christianity, another victim of um, performance Christianity. And that victim is our understanding and apprehension of the character of God. 
You fall into mechanistic Christianity, you know it, brothers and sisters, whether you realize it or not. You're in mechanistic Christianity, performance-based Christianity, when you find yourself being critical of God's character and his works. If you're critical of those things, and maybe I should put a footnote there, if you, if you um, remain a long time there, if you remain there, it's normal to have, wait a second, God, what's going on? But in faith, that'll transform you. Mechanistic Christianity never gets beyond the criticism. So God said Malachi, and in the text before us, we're going to look at this week and next week, the text before us is rich. Malachi 1 through 2, you don't see a lot of messianic promises. 3 through 4, it's packed. And so because of that, there's a lot here, and therefore I want to give, uh, do justice to it. So we're going to take two weeks to get through this. Notice with me, we're going to begin, though, noticing with the indictment, which is what Malachi begins with, verse 17, the indictment that God's people were raising against God. Notice with me, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good on the side of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? The people here were, re- were leveling three accusations against God. Notice with me in your notes the first one, accusation one. God is silent in the face of, of evil, right? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of, of the Lord. God has done nothing. And that's the struggle that Asaph and Solomon and Job and, and David, and that's the struggle they were having. Same one. Why is God good to the wicked? Okay? And that's what God's people began struggling with. But it advanced from there. Those, those men I referenced before were, uh, struggled with faith, and that led them to, to submission and, and recognition and realization and love uh, for God. But not necessarily with the people of God in Malachi's day, because they were performance-based. Notice that first accusation led to a second. And the second one is God delights in evil men and women. And that's the latter part. Everyone who does evil is good inside the Lord, and he delights in them. Brothers and sisters, that's blasphemous. Okay, the, the first is a struggle. The second is sin. The first is not, is not sin, not necessarily. The second is sin. God delights in sin. He delights in sinful people. He delights in sin. That's what God does. I mean, look at us. We've been serving God, doing all these wonderful things, and what do we get? Struggle and difficulty. What do those wicked people get? Blessings of God. Why? Because God likes sinners. He likes their sin. And then that leads to because they're not in faith, that leads to a third one. But would you notice, brothers and sisters, you might hear that and go, man, these guys, how can these guys be saved? These guys are pretty bad. Yet Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, God began with this very important foundation. I have loved you. We're not dealing with apostasy or apostates. We're dealing with apostasy here, but not apostates. We're not dealing with non-believers. We're not dealing with goats. We are dealing with Christians who sometimes arrive at this point in their walk. Boy, I love to know that because I sometimes arrive at my walk exactly where these guys were. Right? I said, I go, God, what? You're less sin then, huh? That's what you like, evidently. Can you imagine saying that to a holy God? I can. I wish I can't. I wish I didn't. Notice the third accusation. God is uncaring, not near, nor is he involved in our lives Where is the God of justice? It reminds us of the words that Elijah told the prophets of Baal, challenging to see whether or not these gods were even gods. Nevertheless, in the midst of it, notice what he says to them. They came about at noon. Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice. 
for, for he is a, a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Elijah here is not questioning their existence, although the, the entire competition was to question their existence. This question is, is questioning their care. God doesn't care. Your, your God doesn't care. He's, he's preoccupied. He's preoccupied with someone more in need. That's exactly what God's people were Where's the God of justice? I thought he loved us. I thought he cared about us. I thought he cared about the things that are going on in my life. Evidently, he doesn't. You ever gone there in your walk? Brothers and sisters, use those not as condemnation this morning. Use those as glorious way to diagnose that your walk with God somehow, some way, is based upon your performance. That you've lapsed into mechanistic Christianity. So that's the accusation. And it is that God, you are not a good God. You are not a caring God. You're not near. You are mean to me. And you know what? Quite frankly, I wonder if you're not really just a just God. I'm not sure if you are just because of what you're doing and how you're doing and how you're managing this world. Now, before we get to God's answer, um, I want to look with you real quickly. Why were God's people so bothered at this point? Um, What's going on that would cause this, this, this... Um, discontentment and struggle. Well, commentators are quick to point out three things. Notice, number one, God's people were struggling in a world that seemed to be against them. Brothers and sisters, they've been in a long famine, a long drought. In fact, we know from Malachi that the land was cursed. Malachi 3.11, just look at verse 11. The land was under a curse. Now, you'd think at this point, therefore, God's people be all for one, one for all, like you would expect a community to be. That was last week. But we know better than that. Mechanistic Christianity makes you live for yourself. And so it wasn't all for one. The wealthy in power used their power not to bless the, the poor. They used their power to, to solidify their own power and their own pleasure. And so the majority of God's people at this time, the vast majority, the under, the, the, the have-nots, they were poor, they were struggling, they were without food. Malachi 3, 5b, look at 5b. They were hungry, they were poor, they were oppressed. So rather than God's people, the majority, the vast majority doing well at this time, they were struggling. And it's those struggling people began looking up and going, God, where's God? Where's God in all of this? And then that led to the second one, God's People, commentaries suggest God's people remain a vassal people at the mercy of pagan overlords. That's another problem. Throughout scripture, Isaiah 2, I, this, this, this took me literally 15 seconds to find these verses. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 16, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 38, Micah 4, Zechariah 8, 12, and, um, and 14. All describe this Davidic king who would sit on the throne of, of David, who would protect God's people, rule and defend them, and the whole bit. So God's people were living a lot of that promise, but for 150 years they've been a vassal kingdom. A vassal kingdom now under the second nation, Persia. At the, at the, at the um, uh, mercy of this guy. You know, that Persian king could whisper in his inner chamber, and hundreds of miles away, Jews would be slaughtered. That's what they're living like. But all these promises saying God's going to send this Davidic king. Where's the Davidic king? 150 years being a uh, um, you know, vassal people. And then the high point, the difficult high point, revolves around the, the temple. Secondly, or, or thirdly, most significantly, God had yet to fulfill his promise to restore his glory to the temple, the city, and his people. This is an important one. God in, in 
Exodus 40, when he ordained the tabernacle, his Shekinah glory filled it. Exodus 40, 34 and following. Then when the temple was built, God's Shekinah glory, 2 Chronicles 5, 2 Chronicles 7, filled it with such um, weight that the priest could not enter. Wow. But we know what God's people did in their sin. And so in Exodus 8, 9, and 10, God's glory was retracted from the temple and abandoned it. But Ezekiel does not end without the promise given by God, the prophecy that the day would come, he would once again um, descend upon the temple. Listen to Ezekiel 43. The glory of the Lord will come into the house by way of the gate facing towards the east. The spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, this is a prophecy. The glory of the Lord filled the house. And he, Christ, said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. In fact, it was this promise that Zechariah, you may recall, used to encourage God's people to continue building the temple and city. Zechariah 8, 3, the Lord, thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. I'm going to return. I'm going to dwell in its midst. If you build it, he will come. That's what they used to encourage God's people. Haggai, Zechariah, build the temple, build the, uh, a city. He will come. It's been 80 years since the temple's been built and God has not come. It's been a little less than 80 years and the city walls have been erected, the city established. And guess what? God still has not come. And so God's people are sitting back feeling a little bit angry, a little bit put off, a little bit miffed over the fact that God's given all these promises. It'd be like us saying, guys, I'm telling you right now, give a lot of money. You give a lot of money and I promise you this coming year, you're going to get a check in the mail for $4,000. $40,000, we all got that, right? Forty grand this time. Give us a lot of money, and I guarantee you God will give you a check for forty grand. And you go, wow, you know, I'm sort of believing this higher life stuff. Okay, Greg, here's my check for 4000 And throughout the entire year, I keep on promising, promising, promising. How long would it be after that year and the next year and the next year, 80 years later, till your family says, where's the forty grand? You promised us something, God. Give it to us. And that's where God's people are. They're miffed. They're angry because God's glory has not come. Incredible. And so, brothers and sisters, God's people began grappling with the promises. And then they began grumbling because of the promises, and which culminated in, in them accusing God. And yet again, unlike the men I referenced before, this didn't lead them to a deeper walk in devotion to the Lord. No, that, rather this led them to, to anger, unbelief, and alienation. Have you ever been there in your walk? Brothers and sisters, this this is where Christianity oftentimes finds us. I am put off by what you're doing, God. You're so good to the wicked, but you're so mean to me. What is going on? Now, before God answers that, I want you to notice with me 217A and the provision of their indictment. On what basis could they have this indictment? And I want you to see, brothers and sisters, there's a reason they had this indictment. There's a reason you and I have that indictment against God. And it's a genuine one and a valid one. Notice 17a. You have wearied the Lord with your words. 
Yeah, you say, how have we wearied him? Let me give you a definition of the word weary. The used of God, the word weary, does not reference an emotion, first and foremost. It's an anthropomorphism um, to denote the impact of the people's sin when it came to God. In essence, God says, I'm going to allow you this amount of time to struggle, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to c- c- uh, come in. Now, we describe that as God being wearied. But God is not emotionally wearied. God, after a certain amount of time, deigned to act by sending Malachi. Now, brothers and sisters, do you understand what you just heard? The implications. Think about that. The thing the people of God are accusing God of is not caring, not not being near, not loving us, sitting afar off and letting us suffer. Brothers and sisters, if God didn't care, if genuinely this being, if, there, if, if God really exists, and he does, and this being was not a loving, kind, and gracious being, you could not weary him. Because the first moment you did anything wrong, he'd get you. Do you understand the provision of, of our being wearied with God? It's the grace of God. Think about that. The glorious grace of Almighty God is why you and I, at times on our walks, can question God's, God's goodness. It's his goodness. It's his kindness that enables us to question his goodness and kindness. During the big debate about kneeling and all that other stuff, I'm not going to get into that. That's, I'm not going to make a comment whether it's good or bad. I heard an interview by a guy who was raised in, I don't know what, um, communist country, North Korea, Germany in the old days, fascism, whatever, whatever he was under. He was on the radio and he said, he was first talking about, um, uh, what's her name, the, on Golden Pond, the, the daughter, what's her name? Um, Fonda and her time in, in Vietnam and how she went to Vietnam and the North Viet, Vietnamese. And he, he was saying, you know, it's crazy. She was, she was rebelling against the United States by doing that. Little did she know that if she did that in any other nation, she'd be executed, any, any fascist uh, uh, regime. And this guy w- was saying that was true, and that's true today. Everyone kneeling, they're kneeling because this country is so great. That's what this guy was saying, with his accent, whatever his accent was. They're kneeling because this country allows, allows people. Brothers and sisters, that's small in comparison to what, what you're seeing here. Because of God's goodness and grace, understand that if you're ever, ever, ever tempted to question his goodness, the very fact that you can question it tells you God's good. He's kind and gracious and and long-suffering. He's not going to zap you. Isn't it incredible? The false gods, our view of God, our view of the false gods is that they'll zap you if you do something wrong. Isn't that what what we think? You know, God's not just. He's mean. He's he's just getting me uh, capriciously. I don't know why he's doing it. Brothers and sisters, if that were true, you'd be dead a long time ago. So understand, secondly, this, this passage is just riddled with grace. I have loved you. Give me an example, God. I've loved you so much, I've allowed you to be wearied. I've allowed you to weary me with your, with your complaints and groanings all day long. So brothers and sisters, as we approach this passage, you've got to approach an understanding it's not performance-based. If it was performance-based, you would have gotten God a long time ago. It's all relationship based upon the work of Jesus Christ. And because of that glorious work, you have a relationship with God of one where you are his children. And because you're his children, guess what you and I can do? He allows it. We can come to the point point of walk with God where we can say, I wonder if God's good. 
And that good God is going to allow that. And that good God is going to mold and shape you because of it. All right, having said that, let's look at that molding and shaping. The first God begins with the fact of his justice. The next week, we're going to look at the molding and shaping. But notice with me the fact of God's justice. Malachi 3, 1. Behold, the language here is one of urgency and immediacy. I mean, this is serious, brothers and sisters. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. If you're reading in your text and you don't write in your Bible, just mark it mentally. If you write in your Bible, underline my messenger. And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Suddenly does not mean, it's not a temporal term. It means shockingly, surprisingly. He will surprisingly come to the temple. It'll, it'll, it'll catch people off guard. That's the idea. And the messenger of the covenant. Again, if you make a mental note of that phrase or, or underline it. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Real quickly. My messenger, the messenger of the Lord of hosts, are two different people. The second does not modify the the first. The second is a different character, identified here earlier as the Lord. The Lord will enter the temple, and then he describes him the messenger of the covenant. This messenger of the covenant is divine. This messenger of the covenant is the Lord. So Malachi is saying, this is God's answer to the question of justice. I'm going to send two people to you, a messenger and the messenger of the, the covenant. Now we know, I'm going to save you a lot of spare here. We know the first one, my messenger, is John the Baptist. And we know the second one, the messenger of the covenant, is none other than Jesus Christ. Now let me sort of demonstrate that to you real quickly here. When we look at the, my messenger, his call was to clear the way before the Lord. What does that mean? Turn with me if you would, or look above to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Here we learn what it means to clear um, the way of the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Notice the text. A voice calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Let every mountain be and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then, speaking not of John, but of the Messiah, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together with the mouth of the Lord. Or I'm sorry, they'll see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In the ancient days, when a king visited a city, he would send out stewards. And their job was to make sure that the route the king was going to take was safe and smooth. Okay, and so if there were boulders on the road, they'd dig out the boulders and make it flat. If the, bowl, if the road had little tiny curves, waves, they'd fill in the valleys, knock off the humps. If it was narrow, they'd widen it. Um, so their job was to pave the way of the Lord, of their Lord, their king, so that when the king came to the city, the king would be able to ride on his, on his chariot or whatever form that he's on with an easy, smooth ride. That was the job of these stewards. And God says, I'm going to send such a steward before Jesus Christ, before the Lord. And he's going to come, and he's going to make what is narrow wide. He's going to make the the valleys into plains, mountains into plains. He's going to make the way nice and path, nice and sweet, so that people on that plain can see their king. How did John the Baptist do that? Well, Luke or Mark chapter 1. Spiritually, John the Baptist played that role 
Um, and by way of note, if you're still in Malachi, notice Malachi 4 verse 6. It promises, referencing this messenger, his name would be Elijah. Okay? God would raise up Elijah. All right, verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the, the prophet. Okay? So that being said, Mark 1, 4, the beginning of the gospel to Jesus Christ... The Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, he just as well could have said as is written in Malachi, who will prepare your way. Now, how did he do it? Did he, did he physically get out there with sticks and shovels and picks? No, he preached. Notice. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That's how he made, paved the way. He preached the word of God. Now notice the fruit. The fruit of these stewards was a, was a smooth path. What's the smooth path that would lead God's people to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Or better yet, to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Luke 1, 13-17 announces the birth of John. Listen to it. But the angel said to him, Zacharias, his father, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And this would be the fruit of his ministry. Notice what this steward would do, the result. Um... Uh, while, while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons um, of Israel to the Lord their God. So his preaching would turn back many. And it, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Malachi 4.5. Malachi 3. All right, in the spirit of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteousness so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was how he would make a smooth path. Okay, then brothers and sisters, back to Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah uh, uh, chapter uh, 40. Isaiah 40 verse 5, the text goes on. Then, after this messenger comes then the glory of the lord will be revealed that's talking about the messenger of the covenant jesus christ and all flesh will see it together now let, recall with me in ezekiel 43 god promised that his glory once again would descend upon the temple in zechariah zechariah quoted those verses and said this temple God would fill if you build it. That very temple, second temple. Well, brothers and sisters, when did God do that? If God's just, he's going to do it. If he's true, he's going to do it. When did he do it? Well, brothers and sisters, listen to John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? His glory. The glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What makes him glorious? John 14, 9, he's God. Jesus said to him, have I, born, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the glory of God. And therefore, every time we conclude Jesus entered the city or the temple mount, he fulfilled the promise made, to God, made by God as far back as Ezekiel. 
And yet, brothers and sisters, because you and I tend to take the word of God in mechanistic Christianity, in performance-based Christianity. Performance-based Christianity is all about you and me, is it not? Because you and I do that, guess what we do in performance-based? We tend to take the promises of God as if they're about us. So, brothers and sisters, these, these men, these women, they missed it. Their biggest fall, let me just read it. You've got it in your notes. All this brings us to the ultimate problem of the people of God in Malachi's day. It wasn't that God was a liar, and he's not. It wasn't that, he's ju- that, that he wasn't just. He, he is. That was the felt problem. That's what they were saying. That's what they were accusing. It's that God's promise, or, or God's people, read the promises of God and mistakenly expected them to be fulfilled in their lifetime. Their problem is because they're mechanistic, they believe that their life is based upon their performance. All the promises of God about joy and happy and ease of days must be the result of my conduct and because I'm, I'm conducting myself well, therefore that must, be, be, that must occur in my lifetime. Brothers and sisters, that is you and me at times. Why? Because we're performance-based. Let me tell you something. This is going to prick your balloons. It's going to rain on your parade. It's going to ruin your, your pie, whatever the phrases are. This is bad news, guys. This is really bad news to all of you. Okay? For, to all of you who think that the world revolves around you. This is bad news. Okay? It, this isn't part of the bad news. This is setting it up. I was privileged when Paul was being recruited to stand in the Michigan Stadium to walk on the turf. And to look up, because that's the, great, that's the largest uh, football stadium in the, in the United States. 118,000, 113, I forget how many that it holds. But it always makes that claim. If someone builds up to them, they add more seats, because they're going to be the biggest uh, stadium in the U.S. It only holds 118,000, I don't know how many, 113, 118? How many? A little city, okay. Brothers and sisters, do you know how many people have been saved? I don't, but we can guess they're in the millions. So I want you to imagine a stadium filled with every Christian who's ever lived or will live. We've got multi-millions upon millions upon 500 million, a billion, how many people? That's how big that stadium is, that entire stadium. And in the middle of the stadium, do you know what we're there to see? God's redemptive work in Christ. Christ. The entire stadium revolves around Christ. Yet you and I in our Christianity think that our 80, 90 short years on this earth, it's about us. We're in the stadium with millions of people and we falsely conclude what's going on down there is not the focus. People didn't come for that. God's whole plan revolves around me in the stands. That's bad news to every one of you who think that this entire production, millions of people have gathered to watch one thing, and that is God fulfill his promise to you, to give you what you want, to make you happy with your life. Brothers and sisters, this is bad news, but performance-based Christianity is all about that. They believe, no, I'm down in the middle. Everyone else is watching God come to me and be Santa Claus with a big, huge sack opening up one by one. Here's your health that you wanted, and here's your money, and here's your job, and here's that wife, and here's those kids, and here's that better wife, and here's those better kids. You know, on and on and on and on, right? Wow, this is great, God. 
And when God doesn't um, um, uh, come forth, when he doesn't make good on those promises that I read, that I know are all about me, I come up and say, God, foul. So when we get back to Malachi, in Malachi chapter uh, 3, Behold, I'm sending my messenger. This is God's answer to the question, is he just? God is just. I'm suddenly sending my messenger. He's coming, and it's big, massive importance. But you know what, brothers and sisters? Learn a little bit about God here now. God's sending of his messenger in answer to the question, is he just, would not be fulfilled for 400 more years. Is God just? Well, if you stop me in the middle of a haircut and say, am I a good barber? I'd say, no, you, you, you're not if you judge me in the middle of my haircut. But if you look at the finished product, is God just? Brothers and sisters, next week we're going to talk a whole lot more about God's justice. But at this point, notice verse 2, it changes tenor. Lastly, speaking of the messenger of the covenant, Jesus Christ, but who can endure the day of his coming? You want justice? Who can stand when he appears? You want justice? For he, will, he, will, uh, for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soul. Okay, notice the argument. God is not just. Malachi comes and says, so you don't think God's just? No, we do not think God's just. We got a problem with how God is ruling this world. So Malachi says, verse uh, 3, verse 2, be careful what you ask for. Now we're going to learn a little bit about God's justice, brothers and sisters. Okay, be careful what you ask for. This is how God's justice works out individually in your life. Now, next week, we're going to come back to this and expand upon it. But notice with me how it works out. First of all, the coming of the messenger of the covenant would do three things. Verse 2a, the result will be no one will be able to endure it. 2b, no man will be able to stand. And then 2c, God will refine his people. We're going to talk about each of those next week in verses 3 through 6 because that's what Malachi does. But we don't have time. This morning, I just want you to notice, brothers and sisters, that God's justice always begins with you. Listen to the quote of Baldwin. Who can endure the day? The, the question implies a searching ordeal. And the second question, who can stand, is borrowed from the battle imagery, 2 Kings 10 and Amos 2, and means who will stand his ground. The prophet suggests that no one will pass the penetrating tests which the Lord will impose. And that is what we see here, brothers and, and sisters. The language of refiner's fire, we're going to come back to that next week, is a fire used to refine gold. And the language of fuller soap is an occupation which, which made, through the use of chemicals, which made wool white. We're going to come back to that next week. But both of those are the overflow of God's justice in your life. Now, I'm almost done. Think about that for a moment. Don't let your mind wander. Both of those, you, want, you, want, you, you say, I want justice, God. I want, I want, I'm tired of me not getting what I think I deserve because, the, of course, this show is all about me. And secondly, I'm tired that you're giving those people who don't deserve it, you're making them the show, and they're wicked people. God, I want justice. Malachi says, be careful. Because justice, the benefit of justice in your life is not the condemnation of the wicked people you don't like. That is not the first benefit. The first benefit of a justice in God is to come and refine you.
Now you go, that's bad news. No, 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 that's good news. That's next week. That's incredible news. He's going to come. and we, Why? Well, because of Malachi 1, 2. I love you. The point of verses 1 through 2 is to demonstrate that God is in fact just. He is true to his promises, and he does not look lightly upon sin. And so the people of God in Malachi's day, brothers and sisters, as in our own, must understand two things. And this is what I'm going to close you with. One, God's timing is not our own. Don't forget that. A hundred years is as a day, Second Peter 3. But let, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Brothers and sisters, our time is not God's. I find it so hilarious to me. I really does. I'm reading this and I sort of laughed. God's people in 444 say, we want justice. And God says, I am going immediately to send this justice. And it comes 400 years later. Brothers and sisters, does that mean for 400 years God was doing nothing? Study that area. Not redemptively. He wasn't doing a whole lot redemptively in terms of his redemptive program. He was saving people, but I mean his redemptive covenantal program. He wasn't doing anything. The next event would be the second coming or the first coming of Christ. But what was he doing? He was preparing the world for that event with Alexander the Great and then the Roman Empire coming in and making all the roads in peace, the Pax Romana. God was doing an incredible amount of work in preparation for the declaration of his justice. <clears throat> and that justice would come when Jesus Christ came to this earth with first the preface of John the Baptist, preparing the way. So one, recognize God's timing is not our own. We're going to return to these themes next week. Lastly, judgment begins with the household of God, First Peter 4. Don't ever forget that. Anytime you, you bemoan the benefit of non-believers, you and I need to stop looking at what they got and start looking at what God in his grace is giving you. And you know what he's giving you? Discipline. Okay? Refining you. He loves you, brothers and sisters. Because the show is not about you. It's about Christ. And he's going to equip you so you can live in paradise. He's going to equip you so you can breathe the air of heaven. If you went there right now, you'd suffocate. If you went there right now, your eyes would be rotten out of your flesh because no eye can see God and live. But God's preparing you and equipping you through all of his providences, be they good or bad, bitter or, or sweet. He's preparing you and equipping you for that glorious day when you enter into the presence of God and you say, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on the earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You are heaven. You are what I'm waiting for. Here I thought it was money and wealth and health and all these things. No, God, you constitute heaven. You are my portion forever. So the blessing God's given you is the glorious promise that he will never let you go. He's going to make sure you get there when the time comes. I close with the words of Joyce Baldwin. The prophet suggests that no one will pass the penetrating tests which the Lord will impose. Yet the purpose of the refiner was not to destroy but to purify. And the fuller soap, we'll talk about this next week, or rather alkali soap in our sense was not yet in use, was applied in order to whiten cloth. According to these metaphors, suffering fulfills a divine plan to remove impurities of character. See, brothers and sisters, you'd see that if you'd understand your walk with God was based upon the work of Jesus Christ. 
that in Christ you are now God's children. But when you and I forget that and we, and we go back to performance-based, we miss all that. And we feel like any kind of difficulty and hardship in our lives is there because God's paying us for something we don't even have any memory of doing. And now we start getting angry and bitter at how God's let us down. That's performance-based. That's mechanistic. Get done with uh, performance. Rather, may you relate to God on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ and the glorious message, the glorious truth that in Christ you are now sons and daughters of God Most High. Praise be to God. And where you and I find ourselves struggling against God, don't, that's not condemnation. Allow that to temper or to open your eyes to say, wow, I must be relating to God on the basis of my conduct because I'm so angry at him for sending this latest thing. So don't let that condemn you. Don't make you, oh, I'm such a bad Christian. No, let that inform you so you can go to God and say, God, by the very fact that in my heart was, was anger just a little bit ago against you, tells me that I'm relating to you on the basis of my conduct. Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. Try me and know my, my wicked ways. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me, God. Purge me, refine me into the everlasting way. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. We just dove into it and just begun it. But Lord, thank you for so much that's already been given to us, your people. The glorious message that you are just. The glorious message that it's not about us. The glorious message, O oh God, that's all about your messenger of the covenant. The glorious message, O oh Lord, that that messenger, as he comes, as you come in our lives, will come to refine and prepare and equip us that we might be ready for the day to enter into your presence. And so, Lord, we thank you. And we say, my, behold how much he loves us. God, thank you for loving us so much you will not let us go. And though, Lord, our, our sinfulness and our um, temporalness and our limited vision at times leads us to such shocking conclusions about you, shocking accusations, I praise you, God, that you're able to be wearied, that, you're, that you suffer long with your people, that you love us, and that, Lord, you are a God, because of your goodness, who allows your, 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 your people to struggle like, like Jacob, Paul kicking against those goads like me. Lord, thank you for your goodness and grace. Oh, Lord, may we love you more because you have first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.